We're putting new energy in new energy. More and more solar projects are cropping up all across our state. After I visited Tel Aviv last year, Doral Renewables announced that they were building the largest solar farm in the United States on 13,000 acres in Stark and Pulaski counties. Eventually, it will generate enough electricity to power hundreds of thousands of homes, all by cultivating the sun. Thank you, Nick, for your confidence and incredible investment in the state of Indiana and our people. Thank you. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. Episode number 82 is going down right now. And look, it's not every day that we have a guest on the show who gets a shout out from a state governor, but that's exactly what you heard in the introduction there. Nick Cohen, president and CEO of Doral Renewables, LLC. You heard him getting shouted out there by Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb uh, in his latest State of the State address. And why did he get shouted out? Well, he talked about the Mammoth Solar Project over there in the state of Indiana, 13,000 acres it covers 1.5 billion dollars is the price tag and it's going to power 200,000 homes and produce 1.65 roughly gigawatts of power and we're going to let Nick talk about that during the show today so we're very excited about having Mr. Nick Cohen on again a great episode that we're very excited about Nick Cohen president and CEO of Doral Renewables LLC but before we get to Mr. Nick Cohen let's hear from our COO and co-founder Miss Ann Niemer telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at erenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Miss Ann Neighbor. You can find out more about the company over at our website, erenew.net. And, of course, give us a follow on our LinkedIn page as well, eRenewable and The Green Insider Podcast for the latest and greatest on the podcast and what's going on with the company as well. And follow us on Twitter at erenew2020. All right, let's get right down to the podcast. Mr. Nick Cohen, lots to get to there. We've got the Mammoth Solar Project to get into. Also, to a great insight on how renewable energy is far more bipartisan than the rhetoric you've been hearing. And of course, Nick's on the ground in rural America, so he's going to tell us a little bit about that. Also, get into some of the mechanics about the Mammoth Solar Project, and you might be surprised to learn that the mechanics aren't much different. Maybe you won't be surprised to learn about how the mechanics aren't much different than your regular solar project, despite the just sheer size of this Mammoth Solar Project, which is, again, the largest U.S. solar project going on right now in the country. Also, too, talk a little bit about supply chain issues. Look, it's a 
real issue affecting everybody. How's it affecting the solar industry? How's it affecting the renewable energy business? Nick's going to dive into a little bit about that and what the U.S.'s role is in the global energy renaissance. This is a great conversation with a great leader of all things renewable energy. Please welcome to the program, Mr. Nick Cohen. We're Doral Renewables LLC, a U.S. company, and uh, we also go by the name of Doral LLC. We have several members, a couple institutional, and our biggest one is Doral Group, which is a publicly traded IPP in Israel. They're also a market leader in Israel, and they have really significant project developments in Europe as well. Uh, they're very innovative. They operate a venture capital fund, and they are leaders in uh, in their market. Uh, they were the first IPP to commercialize a solar project in Israel uh, 14 years ago. So they make the perfect partner for us here in the U.S. because they have a lot of expertise. They understand how to develop projects. It's smart money, and you couldn't ask for a better partner. The company hasn't changed, just the name. Uh, okay. We started out as Global Energy Generation. We have Doral Group as a member. We also have Migdal Insurance, which is one of the largest insurance companies with $90 billion in assets under management. So what happened was that we were procuring gigawatts of panels in, for the U.S. for our projects, and they were also procuring a lot of panels for Europe and Israel. And what we found was with the supply chain crisis and everything going on that it really helped for marketing purposes for the counterparties to understand they were working with one organization. So even though we're separate companies, we are essentially one organization. And when we're procuring uh, panels, it's a global market. So for marketing purposes, we, we changed our name to Doral Renewables, which of course has Doral in the name. And it makes it easier for sellers like of equipment to understand that uh, they're dealing with one organization. I have a lot of global experience, uh, but I, I started in the U.S. in coal and in coal mines and coal gasification, which at the time was called clean coal, which is a remarkable technology. It's been around for a long time, but you can actually create power by gasifying coal and you can sequester a lot of the cats and dogs and make it very clean. And that was the wave of the future and the government was behind it and plants were being built. Uh, however, natural gas came along and it was much cheaper, less complex. And as a result, it sort of displaced the whole clean coal effort. And so I migrated into natural gas because that was the next best thing. It is largely responsible for cleaning up the air in America. From there, I moved to where we are today in renewables. And you know that is the uh, greatest uh, environmental benefit that our country has seen in, in a transformation of a technology. It also makes a lot of sense. It, it's not just the environment. Solar, wind, renewables make economic sense for as a business model, they make sense. They make sense for communities who get the benefit of the new technology and all the revenue and jobs that are created. It's just all around win for everybody. 
given though that you've had and and again you've had a, a tremendous experience from like you said from coal natural gas to renewables where are you at on the energy transition as far as bringing both sides together and why has it become so adversarial with both sides and what needs to happen over these next five to ten years before we can become completely reliable or do you see a situation where we'll ever be completely reliable on just clean energy and renewable sources I think the way to, to start that question is with the end of the question. And really, uh, yes, renewables are are the future of energy. And as the technologies improve and economies of scales are reached, it just makes good economic sense. And ultimately, things that make good economic sense uh, prevail, wh- whether the government's involved, whether uh, there are environmental benefits or not. If, if it makes really good economic sense, it usually... Uh, prevails. And right now, renewable energy is the lowest cost of, of energy. Also, I would say that renewable, it's not as divisive as one might think. Renewable energy is the one business that brings everybody together. Okay, we go to like rural America, and you can fill a room with Republicans and Democrats, and everybody's on the same page. They want the project. It's bringing revenue to the farmers. It's bringing revenue to revitalize rural America. It's also cleaning up the environment and it's providing a great place for the liquidity of investors. So um, it's something that brings everyone together. You can have, you can actually have both sides of the aisle standing in the room supporting you. And if you look at the renewables policy, like for example, the investment tax credit, it's federal, it's bipartisan. Most favorable tailwinds in this industry are bipartisan. So Definitely renewables. If anybody is worried about the politics in America, renewables should give you hope because it does bring everybody together. And and one other thing I would add to that, we get calls every day from coal, oil, steel companies, you know, very carbon-based industry companies who are looking to capitalize on the renewable trend because investors are rewarding companies that have a renewable outlook. And so it's good for business. Also, you have the cheapest source of power. So if you're a steel company, uh, you know, you're looking to, to procure the, the lowest cost of power. If it's renewables, that's great. And then you also have like oil companies and gas companies that have vast land holdings and the surface is sitting there un- unutilized, creating no value. And suddenly you can put a massive wind farm or solar farm on top of it you've suddenly just monetized the surface while you're still working on the subsurface minerals. So it's something that's bringing the whole world together and uh, industries, people, politics, everybody can agree on renewables, maybe for different reasons, but they can all agree that it's good for for what their interests are. So basically from here from you then, it's, it's not as inflammatory as maybe the rhetoric has been presented maybe here in the last 18 to 24 months. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, I don't see much rhetoric out there. You know, it's from time to time, you, you'll you hear, you know, people blaming renewables for... I was going to say, you got to remember, we're here in Houston, right? So, I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a year away, we're a year removed from the, 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 the ERCOT freeze, I'm sure you're well aware of. And again, the rhetoric was, was hot uh, here, to say the least, about, you know, who the blame was. And of course, we all know after, the, after it was all said and done that, you know, renewables played their part. I mean, everybody was responsible for it, but if renewables didn't shoulder the blame they were given publicly. Yeah, I mean, initially there was a gut reaction to blame renewables, but as the facts came out, uh, you know, people didn't want to 
blame renewables anymore because you know it was a more uh, universal problem. Every generating source was affected, and and then when you really boil it down, as soon as you shoot a political arrow at renewables as a culprit, you're you're shooting it at yourself because. The, the political constituencies on both sides that are invested in renewables are enormous. For example, Texas and ERCOT, if you look at where the wind belt is, not just Texas, but even north, those, those are in the reddest areas of red states. So from a, a Republican perspective, uh, you, you know, they're, they're making a lot of money with renewables. Their constituents are saving their farms and cashing in on the renewables. And at the same time, you know, the Democrats who, who are very uh, concerned about the environment and, you know, that they, they like to see the decarbonization. So like that's a perfect, Texas is a perfect example of everybody getting along in the name of renewables. You guys have a mammoth, pun intended there, solar project that you guys have got going on. A little bit about that, how it came to be. I mean, it's the largest solar project in America, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Just kind of soup to nuts how this thing uh, came to fruition. Mammoth capitalizes on Indiana's competitive advantage. There, there just there isn't a state that's any flatter than Indiana. And when you're and when you're developing a solar project, a site site civil work it, it can be a big cost adder. And in Indiana, there's very little site civil work that has to be done. The, the, you have vast farm fields. They're flat and they're sandy, so you're not getting into bedrock or anything. Uh, and also the land ownership is, is pretty sizable. The average landowner that we're working with has about 100 acres. And uh, so that, that means fewer landowners uh, in a project, uh, which is less complicated because as you're putting a project together, you go where the yeses are. And you know if you end up with a checkerboard of yeses, that makes for an inefficient project. In a place like Indiana, you only need three or four yeses and you have a nice clean block. So that's one of the advantages. Another one is that you have two grid systems, MISO and PJM, that come together in Indiana. So that gives you market optionality. And then I would also say that the uh, the government of Indiana is, is like, they're all over this advantage. They know that if they don't get the solar, their neighbors will. And and then they're going to be paying farmers in neighboring states for energy. So uh, they're capitalizing, they're seizing the moment, and uh, they're exceeding their neighboring states in most uh, economic factors. And that's because uh, the governor and his people are just focused on improving the uh, industry cluster around renewables, which is, uh, you know, our project alone is a $1.5 billion investment. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's revitalizing Stark and Pulaski counties. And it's, we have 65 farmers uh, involved in this project. And, uh, and there will be hundreds of jobs created. So it's definitely, you know, for a place like Indiana, they're, they're just capitalizing on the advantage. Uh, but that's why we're in Indiana. It's just the most competitively advantaged place in America for, for a solar project. You talked about a block of four 100-acre farmland, so you have 400, as opposed to a checkerboard where you might skip some. Talk about the differences of the checkerboard versus a block of 400 and the size of the megawatts that could go in one versus the other. 
the more compact your site is, the more efficient your build will be. You know, for example, you have to run wires. Uh, you know, they call them home runs from point A to point B. And you have to cross roads. You have to do all kinds of uh, things that uh, cost more when you're having to take a circuitous route for your uh, infrastructure. So it's, it's a permitting issue. It's a zoning issue. It's an actual capital infrastructure issue. Uh, and, and by having these nice, neat blocks, you can save costs on your engineering, on your equipment, on your permits and zoning complexities. Uh, there, there are just so many advantages, the landscaping, the, the actual implications to the zoning are all benefited by a more compact design. Got it. Is there any rule of thumb of every 100 acres typically equals how many megawatts? Is there a rule of thumb that goes with that? I, I, it really does vary uh, greatly, but you know, I would say that for every five acres, one megawatt, uh, you know, you're you're really doing well. Uh, I think that the the rule of thumb is more around eight or nine acres per megawatt. And you know, one of the reasons too is that you you avoid as much as you can in terms of uh, environmental uh, impacts. So if there's a cluster of trees, you just leave them. If there, you go around them, if there's a wetland or a, you know, a, a habitat for an animal, even if the animal's not there, you're better off going around it than disturbing it. And so as a result, you tend to increase the ratio of acres to solar production. But a one to five would, would basically be a great target to hit. But in reality, it's more like eight or nine. That's good to know. Thank you. A lot of our listeners, that means a lot that just learn that from you. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, Mike, one, one important thing about that statistic is, is that, as I was saying, you know, the, you're avoiding things, you're, you're going around. So if it's one to five or one to eight, you know, one megawatt to eight acres, it doesn't mean that those eight acres are just a solid glass fenced in area. You usually have quite a bit of distance between the panels, you know, 15 to 30 feet of greenery, vegetation growing between the panels, under the panels as well. So it's not like a parking lot. A lot of times you'll see concerned citizens or opposition forces, they'll, they'll find a solar field in the desert somewhere in, in, in Saudi Arabia or something. And where, where you know, from, from the top view, which by the way is a view that no one ever looks at panels from, they'll look down and it'll look like a parking lot. Uh, but that is not how solar is really designed in the Midwest or really anywhere uh, except the desert. So, um, you know, what those acres, there's a lot of greenery in those acres. So the solar panels really only cover about 20 to 30% of, of those acres. The rest is greenery. So how did the when when and, and real quick? So I'm lo, I reading up on this. I mean, you guys are doing 1.65 gigawatts. Uh, the you you kicked off construction what last October, and then I guess the second phase of it's supposed to st uh, go down this year uh, is what my understanding is. What I mean. When you're putting together a project of this magnitude, and of course, how much did you guys lean? I mean, how much in your experience uh, had you put together a project this size? And then did you go back to your home office and, and, and consult with the folks back in Israel to kind of, you know, do some due diligence and get some of their input to put something of this size together? 
Well, one, one of the best arguments for doing something of this size and delivering the lowest cost power to consumers is that the effort to develop a project of this size is more or less the same effort and fundamentals as designing one much smaller. You know, you get one permit, you get, you know, you go through one zoning process. In this case, it's two because we're in two counties. You have one engineering effort. And so, so the size, even though it, there aren't very many developers that could ever say they, they've developed a project of this size, the fundamentals are identical on a smaller project. The numbers are much bigger and the effort to acquire the land was much more, you know, it really was a community effort. It, it involved really listening to the landowners and, and uh, understanding them so that you could uh, sign up enough landowners. But other than that, you are just fundamentally following the same uh, blueprint as, as anyone else who's develop, developing a utility scale a solar project. And I think in the future, you, this right now is the biggest project in America, but you know, soon there will be others that are, are bigger than this, I'm sure. What have you seen from a project standpoint? How, how has it been affected by the supply chain issues? So, Fred, um, supply chain issues are, are huge. I think how we've been affected is probably uh, different than how a lot of our peers have been because we have the best people in the business working in our organization. Plus we have the global network and those people are able to make up for a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the supply chain by getting ahead of it and utilizing relationships in, in the, in the supply chain channel and just making like very smart decisions based on uh, the experience that they have in, in developing large utility scale projects in, in, in a complex supply chain. I would say that um, industry-wide, the, the biggest supply chain issue that we're faced with right now is really it's on panels. Uh, panels are in short supply. Uh, however, globally, there's a glut of panels. And so in, within our supply chain, we have no problem getting panels in Europe, for example. So why is that? And, and this isn't a political statement, but there is a WRO policy, which is essentially uh, customs uh, working towards assuring that uh, no panels or the materials inside the panels are coming from forced labor areas in China are able to enter the US. Uh, so of course we don't want anything in our projects that would ever be uh, associated with forced labor. So I, we're glad for this uh, policy to some extent, but it has created a traceability issue that the onus is on the manufacturer to prove that nothing in those panels came from the forced labor areas in China. So, you know, when, when you look at a panel that has hundreds of components in it, uh, including raw materials, you need a very sophisticated level of consultancy backing up the traceability of these panels. And you know you be, have to be able to, to prove it at customs or else your panels could be seized and, and it could be uh, financially uh, catastrophic for the, the panel manufacturer who would lose their panels being seized at, at US customs. So because of this, the supply is constrained and the prices are way up on panels in the US. And you know it has 
created cost escalations in the business. The power purchase agreement prices are way up for the first time after years of trending down. They were correlated to lower costs. You now have a supply and demand issue and largely due in part to customs. Uh, there are other factors that are widely known, like uh, transportation, for example, you, you know, it, it is way up over the past, uh, you know, although that's only two or three cents worth of a, of a panel, um, which is like maybe 10%. Uh, you have certain materials like polysilicone, which are in short supply these days. You definitely have cost issues and, and then you have uncertainty in the supply chain. And as a result, fewer projects are being built. But I do think that like with anything, you know, time, time will, will adjust the market and, uh, you know, projects will, will be back on track probably by the end of uh, this year. The reason there aren't more American-made panels available, firstly, there was a limited supply. So they're, they're mostly subscribed at this point. You can still get supply for 2023, I think. You have to step back several years ago when uh, many countries in Southeast Asia offered incentives uh, globally for uh, panel manufacturers to set up uh, manufacturing in their countries. And so as a result, investors uh, poured uh, money into manufacturing in Southeast Asia. And you know, as a result, that's where most of the solar supply was developed. I would think that like with the infrastructure plan and maybe if Build Back Better comes along, there'll be more incentives for manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, you know, maybe the whole supply chain issue is a wake up call that we, we need to find ways to develop uh, man more manufacturing in the U.S., especially when we have bipartisan, ambitious, renewable goals uh, at the federal and state levels. Uh, if we want to meet those goals and we want the security of the supply chain, you know, we should be building panels in the U.S. Uh, also, some of the panels in the U.S. Um, have some materials in them that are perfectly safe. There's uh, telluride and cadmium and uh, perfectly safe. There's no issue with it. However, opposition forces have been out promoting that these are toxic elements. And, and in some cases, in some of our projects, we have actually been mandated by the local governments that we're not allowed to procure those panels. So they're forcing us to not get panels made in America. And it's probably an unintended consequence. And that's because the opposition got their ear and misinformed them about these, these perfectly safe, good performing panels and, and made it more difficult for companies like ours to procure those panels. So, you know, I, but I, I, I do think in the future, it'll do three or four years from now, there'll, there'll be more manufacturing happening in the U.S. You've been doing this globally for, you know, a quarter of a century now. Where is the U.S. as you see it when it comes to, you know, being a leader globally with this renewable push? The U.S. is a leader in, in renewables. Uh, we, we have uh, bipartisan support and political uh, tailwinds uh, for this industry. If you look at the amount of renewable energy that has uh, become part of the energy mix over the past 10 years. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, it, it still has a long way to go. Part of it is the technology. For example, in, at Mammoth, uh, you know, we're in the Midwest. Look, look at the latitude. Uh, you know, it's, five years ago, when, when, when you looked at panel technology, the efficiency and the, the cost per watt, 
it, it wouldn't pencil out in a place like Indiana. Even though Indiana is a very sunny place, it's five years ago, it, it just wasn't economical. Today, even with the increased panel prices uh, that we've, which is just, I think it's an aberration, uh, but even with those increased prices, these projects pencil out as the lowest cost of energy in a place like Indiana and Minnesota and Canada. So, so part of it is that, you know, we are leading because uh, we've created economies of scale and the economies of scale are translating to an accelerated build out of renewables. So, you know, I, I would look to the U.S. to continue to be a leader in renewables. And then as far as the rest of the world goes, I mean, some might argue that, okay, well, you know, we became a leader because, uh, you know, we used uh, dirty energy during our industrial revolution and got ahead. So why can't, you know, other countries uh, take advantage of the, of the same circumstance, even if it's 100 years later? And what I would say to that is renewables are the cheapest source of energy, especially when you look at not only the levelized cost of energy, but the um, societal impacts. When, if you're burning lignite coal, you have to mine it. There's environmental and health implications that go well beyond the levelized cost of energy. And most countries are realizing this in their policy and, and, and companies and investors are realizing that they can make a lot of money in renewables. And so it makes good economic sense, not just environmental. And because of its economic sense, because these countries are taking advantage of the same economies of scale that we are, everybody's benefiting. And so, you know, I, I think we are a leader, but other countries will, will, will follow and some will lead. You know, Europe, Germany, for example, has been very aggressive and successful in their build out of wind and, and solar. And, uh, they have a lot of nuclear too. I know they're trying to get out of it, but uh, you know the the footprint. You know, coming they, they used to be primarily coal, and when you look at their environmental footprint, it, it, it's very much improved. And just like in the U.S., uh, investors are making money, and uh, communities are getting revitalized. So I, I really think because renewables are good for everyone, you can just see the growth rate. What's on the horizon for uh, Doral Renewables LLC? And where are you guys at on the battery storage front? So, I mean, we have a six gigawatt portfolio and growing. And so we'll be building more projects over the next couple of years, a lot more projects. We have a battery storage division and we do have several battery storage projects uh, across America. We're building that portfolio up and uh, we're excited about it. It's definitely a really nice technology to pair up with a solar farm, solar or wind. And as standalone, it depends what market you're in. Uh, ERCOT is definitely a good, good place for standalone storage. So the cost for storage is coming way down. So, you know, I think that it's going to be a great business. We're also heavily into agrivoltaics and, and hydrogen. So, you know, we're, we're a development platform. We develop energy projects. So, you know, whatever the the most appropriate technology is at the time and for the place, you know, we'll be there assuring that it gets commercialized uh, in, into a uh, profitable project. 
Thank you so much for that, Mr. Nick Cohen. Great information from him. And, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, too, that they are a NAMA member. That's the North American Energy Markets Association. For those of you scoring at home, of course, uh, lots of good stuff there at NAMA. So we definitely implore you, if you're not a NAMA member and you don't listen to the NAMA News Minute, which you catch here every other week on the Green Insider Podcast, check them out over at NAMA.com. You will be glad that you did. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and eRenew.net. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we know that a lot of you do give us a five-star rating why because we promise you learn more about renewable energy and the energy transition from the green insider podcast than you knew about it before you stop by be sure to check out next week's episode as well very excited about that john markwell from exits management partner is going to join us also another name of member looking forward to talking to him great information he's given out and kind of what they're doing in the energy management and asset space so you're definitely going to want to check that out and then of course uh, our long-awaited deloitte series is coming out in a couple weeks as well so we're very excited about that Two. Got to give a shout out, as always, to the entire Green Insider and eRenewable team and Mike, Roger, Al, all the listeners, the audience, and of course, without the guests, we couldn't do this without you. So thank you so much for your time and for help making this happen. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Yeah.